Hello sword people, this is Guy Windsor, also known as The Sword Guy, and I'm here today talking with Robin Ullman of the Athena School of Arms, uh, a woman who you may know from the US tournament circuit. Without further ado, Robin, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me. It's very nice to see you. Now, just so we can orient ourselves, Robin, whereabouts are you? Well, um, I live outside of uh, the Boston, Massachusetts area of the United States. So what made you want to get started with historical martial arts? What drew you into the path of the sword, if I may be so bold? <laughs> well, um, so my interesting story is that um, as like an adult, um, I've kind of come into trying to figure out uh, sports and martial arts later. Mm -hmm. Um, I think for me, like as a kid, I was always one of those who's like the last picked, you know, on a sports yep. team in school and was not usually very coordinated in certain things. So a lot of um, what I did like in my youth was basically between dancing and uh, cheerleading later on. But I was always interested in martial arts. And it's like I always wanted to go to like at that time, the only thing you had access to was karate mm -hmm. and Although my parents were very good about like being open to like, these are things that only girls do. And these are only things that guys do. Martial arts was not something that they were like, oh, yeah, we should totally put you in a karate class as a kid. So I never really tapped it into it, like the thought of it until later on in life. when I was trying to be like, oh, I want to um, do something that is like kind of like better physical mm -hmm. fitness and something more engaging than uh you know, going to the gym on a treadmill or something. And my friend had got me on the path of deciding to do Kung Fu. So I did Kung Fu for a few years in my uh, late 20s, early 30s. Took a pause from it because life's, you know, always gets in the way of like work or whatever. And I was going to, a couple years ago, go back to doing Kung Fu. And what stopped that path was that um, I went to an annual science fiction and fantasy convention that happens in the, yeah, exactly. Awesome. Cause everything yeah. ties to nerd. That's right. Yep. <laughs> it's this big, <laughs> it's this big convention that's called Aresia. Mm -hmm. And, um, I've gone to like, I've gone to it for a couple of years. And one year I went with a bunch of friends and, uh, one of my friends was like, I just went to this awesome demonstration that involved swords and it was really cool. And they're running another demonstration the next day. You should go take that that workshop. And I'm like, OK, sure. That that sounds cool. Mm -hmm. So I went and did that. And it was Athena that was um, running the workshop. And they had like demonstrations at the end. So you could actually pick up either a broadsword or a longsword and like learn some sure. basics. I've, like, I've taught that kind dance of thing at, at, a, at role playing conventions yeah. and things like that. Sure. <laughs> Exactly. Just to engage interest. And after the workshop, they were mentioning that, hey, we're running like an introduction to German longsword class for that runs for eight weeks. And, you know, you should sign this up. Athena, right? So, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I was like, you know what? I'm a person who just tends to like taking on like, like, oh, here's a cool, you know, crafting class or sure. here's a cool drumming class I want to do. So I'm like, you know what? I'll do this for eight weeks and this will actually help condition slash transition me back to doing Kung Fu afterwards. So, so historical martial arts is a gateway drug to Kung Fu. Okay. That's a new one. It was That's basically going to be like, Ooh, here's something fun and flashy yeah. and it'll get, and like, get it'll be moving. engaging. And then it'll be like, right, exactly. And that was the, the, the idea. And then the last week of um, the intro class, they, what Athena does is that they offer, both a cutting night and a um, fight night. So like the cutting night be is your first experience having, you know, a sharp yep. sword and cutting through tatami. And the fight night is where you would go with existing, you know, t uh, club mates and like learn how to actually Fence. put in the, you know, skills you learned over the intro. So it's really important not those to get two nights confused for those two. No, no, they are separate <laughs> nights, definitely. <laughs> it would be bad to mix yeah, and match. Yeah, yeah. Or those blunt swords are useless on tatami. <laughs> yeah so so it wasn't until those that week of like classes uh -huh. like having those two experiences was like a oh 
oh, okay, I'm I'm hooked. Maybe there's a way I can do both this and Kung mm-hmm. Fu at the same time. Tried doing that for like a month or two and then just realized it was hard to juggle both sure. at the same time along with a working schedule. So, yeah, mar- historical martial arts. <laughs> I'm very glad to hear it. Kung Fu's loss is our game. Um, yeah, pretty so, much. <laughs> can I ask what, what branch of nerddom or geekdom brought you, to, or even fandom, we should say, brought you to Aridia in the first place? Um, yeah. Um, so I tend to, like, I'm very big into video mm-hmm. gaming. I mean, I'm, vi- I'm very big into all kinds of gaming because I, I like tabletop, board mm-hmm. games, video games. I, as a kid, I grew up, like, very much into video games and especially in my... Um, late teens, I really got into more um, role-playing mm-hmm. game-based ones. So for those who are well aware of that area, like if anyone understands uh, uh, Square Enix's Final Fantasy series, that is my traditional like go-to um, RPG-styled uh, video game of my entire okay. life. So much so that like that I have a tattoo of one of the main characters from right. it, which that, is That suggests a certain nerd. degree of uh, commitment. <laughs> With, Just a little bit especially especially when you have a dress code at work that doesn't allow tattoos past two inches so <laughs> the fact that you have to commit to yeah i have to wear tights or pantyhose or pants so that way i hide this huge sword wheeling character from a video game yeah slightly <laughs> <laughs> okay so sorry what work do you do that has such a such a strict tattoo policy um I work in banking, ah, right, so okay. I uh, so I work in uh, compliance and internal audit within a community bank. So serious banking. Um, so e- serious enough, and and b- the banking industry has gotten better, mm-hmm. you know, over time. Where it's not like when I first started out out of college working as a bank teller, I still had to wear like a full suit going into like work uh, as a part time bank teller, okay. and so. The fact that it has the dress code has gotten better over time is an improvement. Like I have, I had a lot of ear piercings mm-hmm. like years ago. I would not be able mm-hmm. to throw that, but now it's they're fine if they're in taste. But tattoos are one of those things that's still a progression, mm-hmm. and it's 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 have it's trying to make its acceptance in very professional realms. So yeah, that's that's why sometimes it's a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. So what sort of historic, I mean, I know you started out with German Longsword because you mentioned you, you did this eight-week German Longsword course. Um, so mm-hmm. is that pretty much where you stayed or what are your main sword interests? Um, primary um, interest and, and, and the most of my training still remains in uh, German Longsword, mostly, yeah, Lichtenauer. Um, that's, that's the primary um, uh, weapon system that Athena teaches. Mm-hmm. But the nice thing with Athena is that we have the ability of learning a lot of other different um, uh, weapon systems. Yep. Uh, back before the pandemic hit, um, we would have what would be a rotational weapon study. So oftentimes, I guess before the pandemic, like on Saturdays, for instance, for like an hour and a half, for like two months, two to three months, we would train in a particular thing. So say for three months, we would do a Saturday study on uh, ringing. Um, And then right before the pandemic, we were actually um, working with uh, spears. um, Because because social distancing. Yeah, they are are the most social distanced (laughs) handheld weapon, I reckon. Right. Before the stay at home order happened in Massachusetts, that was pretty much where we were Mm -hmm. taking our our, our weapon study, uh, which was the complete opposite of bring in beforehand. Yeah. <laughs> um, so through having that kind of exposed me to a lot of different things mm-hmm. in terms of like, um, one of our other major systems is a uh, uh, broadsword. I don't deal with that regularly, mm-hmm. but it is um, something that I do here and there. Um, from a lot of like traveling to tournaments and going to workshops, I've been exposed to a lot more things. So right now, my strong love is sword and buckler. Okay. Um, and that's and that's we're talking 133 what I do mostly 133 or bolognese uh both so I started out learning so with that and this is what happens with me sometimes because I'm just like oh this looks cool let me let me look into it um there was a a tournament that was happening um Long Island Point in 
2018, mm-hmm. I believe. And um, one of the tournaments that they were running was a sword and buckler tournament. And I was like, oh, that would be cool. Let me let me try that on for size. Okay. It's like, I know I'm not going to do well, but it will give me like it give, it'll give me motivation to like learn something sure. different on my own and kind of force myself into a little bit more self-study. Um, and so I started trying to learn, you know, I-33 it's not easy for me to like for self-study understand the sources at the first time around. So what would often happen is I would jump between sources. No, it is not. (laughs) I still find it one of the hardest. Four games translation, I take it. Yeah. Correct. Sorry, carry on. Um, No, that's no, it's fine. So it's, so it's like, I, I dabbled with that, but then what I kind of learned is that I would ask from like friends in the community to be like, well, what are other like videos I can use? Because sometimes reading direct translations is not my strong suit. And so, you know, some people are like, here's the Obsessio video that so you could watch yeah. this. This or... is like my whole career, right? I've written all these books <laughs> so that people don't have to actually be able to handle the manuscript from scratch or work just from a straight translation. Right. And I find that helpful sure. because I feel like for those of us who don't like who don't have that innate talent, I think it's having a, it's a to start skill. from it's not an innate talent. It's a learning. It, I mean, that's true. I know, it's a, it's a and it's sometimes I have to learn. hard to make the time for it. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, and that makes very, sense. It's very it, hard. It, it takes time. It is very hard. And I admire those who like really put in the work to make it easier for us to be able to digest mm-hmm. it better. Um, and so having those kinds of resources makes it easier for me to try to learn that stuff and do the best I can with it. Um, sure. And what I have found, sorry, with, with, with yeah, the, I think with the right sort of scaffolding to start with, what I've seen is that students mm-hmm. who couldn't possibly, for example, read Fiore straight off the Italian page, um, they, they see some of the videos, they read one of my books or whatever, then they get maybe my translation uh, or Tom's translation or somebody else's translation and they start working with that. And eventually they're working directly with the manuscript. But so instead of just instead exactly. of having to jump, you know, from the floor to like the third floor of a, of a building, there's this lab books and videos that will take you there. And so you can start working at, exactly. that, like, at that level, but you don't have to like just climb up the outside of the building with your bare hands. That, that's exactly how it works for yeah. me. It's just much easier to be like, can, can you, can you, bring this down to a level that's easy for me to digest and then work my way back to the yeah. source as I can feel comfortable doing so. And I think that that's a easier way for me to learn a lot of the historical sources. Sure. So you were working with 133 um, and thinking about this tournament and then I derailed you and went into somewhat off topic. So <laughs> bring us back. No, so, so basically um, through that experience, it's like, did some self-study. Um, I attended the tournament. I somehow people say I don't give myself enough credit because I'm, I, I do that, but it's like, I managed to get fifth place um, in that for something that I pretty good. Like, yeah, never, you know, studied on my own is not a, is not a thing that's taught at mm-hmm. our school. Um, and it kind of gave motivation towards like, okay, doing more self-study where I can and things is, is, a good practice for myself and can be enjoyable and kind of broaden my horizons of like, how is this applicable to my longsword study or how is this applicable to other things that I might pick up? Um, so like in the time, like, especially during the pandemic, I've actually dabbled quite a bit more with, um, with, with the Italian, um, stuff. So I have like Mancialino and Morazzo's books now, and I've been trying to dabble into them and see like, where are the similarities between that and I-33 and, I'm tending to like a lot of the Italian stuff better. I feel like it suits me well, better. Totally but I'm one of those who like picks things. The yeah. Context is different and I, I tend to be right, exactly. And I like what I do is I think what I tend to do is I like pick pieces from like different weapon mm-hmm. systems that I think fit with how I fence or how I think and then do it. So I will probably never be the I am the I thirty three girl or I am this. It's more like a here's a blend of things I've learned from systems that I think will work best for me. Yeah, and that's, that's pretty much how I started many, many, many years ago. Sometime in the mid-90s, we were just grabbing, oh, here's a cool technique from this book, I'll do that. Uh, here's a cool technique from that book, I'll try that. And, and it, yeah, it, if you just wanted to learn 
to win fencing matches is actually not such a bad way to go. Um, I'm I, I sort of then developed into being you know, being kind of a purist when it comes to the, how I treat the sources, but even though mm -hmm. every source has bits that are missing, so you right. can be a purist, but you ought to know the Meisterhau, right? And you might be a, a Lichtenarian right. longsword fencer, but you jolly well ought to know Fiore's close quarter plays, and you ought to know things like the exchange of thrust. Right. I think it's important to like it's it's good to learn a source and understand like all the elements to it, but it's also good to see related sources mm -hmm. and see like what are the similarities, what are the differences. If you come across like if I'm going into a sparring match or a tournament with someone who does Fiore, what are they going to do? They're going to do yeah. certain elements that I don't normally do. How do like I should be prepared to know that this is might be the tactic that they use because that's their style of fencing. Yeah, and one of the most common questions I get asked is so what is the difference between the Fiori stuff and the Lichtenau stuff then? And it's like, ah, oh, well, okay. <laughs> and it's like, they, they, it's they like, want... Do you have a few well, hours? No, I, 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 am, I am sort of thinking about embarking on the extraordinarily ambitious project of actually writing a book on it because there is a full book's worth of mm. material there because a lot of it's the same, a lot of it's different. A lot of it is the same but presented differently and that makes things mm -hmm. very awkward for a modern reader expecting things to be done a certain way um, but if you if you had to choose just one book what book do you think you would go with well so so it's funny actually well, like right now with the pandemic yeah. and so it's it, long sword is very limited to me because I live in a tiny apartment ah, with low ceilings yeah, okay. And, 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 uh, and I actually like whatever long sword training I've done has been with my messer in hand because that's the Ooh. only thing I can do to prevent scraping yeah. the ceiling or hitting the TV. So it's good, but it's limited. So during the pandemic, I've been, been working more with like side sword, um, stuff, mm -hmm. um, because it's been easier to work with one handed swords in my limited space. And, um, I think lately what I've been, what, what I've been looking a lot more at, uh, through personal training and jumping in other online stuff is, um, uh, Mincielino's Opera Nova. I've been mm -hmm. digging into a lot lately and also Meyer. So those are the two sources that I've actually been focusing on a lot on my own. Okay. The last couple of months. And if you, if you had to pick one, I'm not even going to ask you just in case you, you leave the Italians and, and pick Maya. So let us move swiftly on before you can. No, no, no. Okay. Now, I know it's, it's tricky. You're, you're sort of stuck inside for much of this pandemic time. Um, mm -hmm. But in my experience, Pretty much everyone has something they know they ought to be training more of, but are not doing so. What would that be, <clears throat> given pandemic limitations? What would that be for you? Um, I think for me in this stage of my life slash uh, fencing mm -hmm. career, I like to joke that you know. And it's not necessarily true because a lot of it's body conditioning and like how you treat yourself. But I like to joke. I'm like, I only have a good couple of years left of tournament, oh. like fierce tournament fighting okay. before like I not worry about as much. I it's it's well, I mean, it's I've I've, I've taken a couple of injuries. Yeah. I, I know my my body limitations. So it's like being smart that, you know, sure, I could do this into my 50s. But I'm, that doesn't probably mean I'm going to run into, like, throw myself into any open longsword yeah, tournament, yeah. you know, that I I'm, choose. I'm like, I have to be mindful of this. Things. Yeah. I'm 41. So it's like, I just am like, okay, be smart. Mm -hmm. You Like, I've had knee and ankle injuries I that have taken me out of, like, fencing for little periods of time in the way that I want to. So I think for me right now, the thing that I wish I could focus more attention to is like tactics mm. in a tournament setting. Okay. And it's like, it's, it's hard for me to I make the transition of 
you go to say you, you go to class and you learn mm-hmm. these are the te- techniques that you need to do to you know break this guard break yep. this thing be able to thrust mm-hmm. you drill those then you go into you know your tournament and then 75% of that goes out the window sure. and you go back to your here, I'm going to do my left overhaul, then right overhaul, and then maybe thrust if I get the chance to. And in the past year, I've started trying to work on that stuff. Mm-hmm. And then pandemics made it hard because you don't have anyone for feedback sure. to be able to, all right, I'm going to make this attack. If this person, you know, parries it and does this thing, how am I going to immediately respond? And it's hard to practice and, and, and train without the feedback of a partner yeah, to do yeah, that. Sure. And so it feels limiting. So it's like I've been working on body mechanics a lot during the, during the mm-hmm. pandemic. And I've been working on like, here are techniques to drill in. So that way I feel more comfortable in doing mm-hmm. it when the time comes. But it's the application of them in the moment that I wish I could be working on more. Yeah, I think that's what everybody's missing during the pandemic, um, dealing with that sort of, uh, should we say, non-scripted, somewhat unpredictable response that you only really get from a partner or from a, from a, a non-compliant right. partner. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of what's derailed my sword and buckler training. It's like, I need someone to be able to like apply pressure with their buckler against my sword so I know, okay, if that's too much, mm-hmm. you know, force, how do I work around it? Like, I can't do that as effectively as I want to. So then all I can do is like, well, let's just focus on just like the side sword or the, the sword element of yep. it. And what can I do to train that in the meantime? Yeah, that's it's hard. Um, now, everyone I talk to tends to have strong opinions about protective equipment. Um, <laughs> I can tell from your face that that is... <laughs> That's that's maybe pushed a button. Oh, well, I I think it's more so the, you know, the acceptance of, like, you're tolerant, you're, like, trying to find the right balance of mobility and protection and how much pain tolerance. Um, I was just chuckling because uh, we, uh, Athena has, like, recently reopened Mm -hmm. under very limited limited circumstances in terms of like all the social distancing uh, rules and guidelines in Mm -hmm. play and um for like the first time in like months because also it's summer so like we're dealing with like 80 90 degree weather right now so it's warm and you don't i've been to your part of the world you don't want to wear full gear it's it's thinking hot (laughs) so it's always the challenge of like how much gear do you are you willing to deal with and uh just this week from class it's like i got like a bruise on my arm because i didn't block an attack Mm. correctly and i was like oh i forgot what that Mm. was like and i'm like well i could have worn heavier padding to protect it but also yeah or just remember to block next time (laughs) um but it's 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 definitely like protective gear is very important um and I mean, especially sparring and tournament things, I try to put the most on other than I have a lighter weight jacket and just accept the fact that some hits are going to be like lingering from a bruise for mm-hmm. a while and that's fine. But um, I just like, I always still want to make sure I'm like, I want to be able to go back to my job. I don't want to come in, you know, injured. Yeah, sure. I don't, I, I don't want like, I don't want my fencing career to affect me being able to have the job that allows me to keep doing fencing. <laughs> yeah, that's that's really important. Um, any particular weak spots in the equipment that you'd like to see fixed? I mean, I mean, I'm sure everyone talks about yes, gloves. It's like when someone gloves. will find the point, and it, and it's always and it's not just the standard glove argument. It's like gloves dependent on the like weapons you do. So like, of course, everyone talks about optimal gloves for mm-hmm. longsword. I think another issue I have is like optimal gloves for say sword and buckler, Mm -hmm. because I'd like to be able to find the optimal. Here's a glove that just fits into the buckler comfortably, but still like provides the most amount of protection because I've had the case where it doesn't matter how good you are. All it takes is one particular 
you know, somebody thrusts into your hand and I've had yeah. that happen and it's like, it's terrible. It's a terrible feeling. Um, so like trying to find like, what's the, how much can I protect my hand in my buck, like for my buckler hand while still having the mobility to rotate the buckler mm. around as I need to. So I think gloves are the worst. <laughs> yeah, I, I think they actually solved this problem pretty handily in the 16th century, but most people can't afford custom-made, perfectly fitted, beautifully articulated gauntlets. Exactly. So it's not, it's not like the problem hasn't been I solved. I agree with you. It's just, you know, those are like $1,000. Right. Um, and in fairness, my hands are probably <laughs> actually worth that amount of money. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's still hard to. But it's still hard to process. Like, I want to spend a thousand dollars for this. I'm like, yeah, mm, probably not. Oh, but they're very pretty. <laughs> oh, that is. There is something to be said about that. Uh, <laughs> Trust me. Yeah, but even so, there's still there's still no way to armor the the palm. I mean, you do see fencing or dueling gauntlets which have um, male. Um, Mail stitched into the palm so you can grab sword blades and you're mm -hmm. unlikely to get a puncture but right um, if you got a rubber tip on the sword you shouldn't get a puncture through a glove but it still hurts like hell but i have seen exactly i have seen the tip come off an epee bladed small sword type thing and the point go sort of between the scales of the glove and into the hand mm -hmm. like yeah. two or three inches into the hand it, it was Yes, it was quite unfortunate. Um, right. But, you know, freak accidents will happen. Absolutely. Um, I mean, we have to know that going into yeah, this. Sure. It's like there's always going to be a risk of an injury. So it's just trying to minimize that as best as possible. And yeah, gloves are, I mean, gloves are a challenge um, in, in multiple formats. So I also, also think about gloves. That's probably like my the first. The first pair of steel gauntlets I bought, they weren't great, but they, they were okay. <laughs> but a couple of days after they arrived, I went, fencing and I got my finger broken mm -hmm. right <laughs> because my steel gauntlets were in my fencing bag and not on my fingers yeah that would be, that would be so, yeah. yeah having it is one thing but yeah. you know how many times do people get injured because the equipment they should have been wearing didn't get put on oh yeah no I mean I've, I've done that too where I'm like a hey, okay gonna assume low sparring maybe I don't need you know the um, like the chest protector, I could probably get by. And then all of a sudden someone like stabs you in the chest yep. and you're like, okay, I was wrong. Go and get that right now. I should have known. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um, do you have any sort of words of advice for beginners, uh, people who are thinking of taking up the path of the sword and haven't, you know, sort of on the edge, they may be a bit scared of the swords or a bit worried about getting injured or don't know where to start or whatever. Oh, yeah. I mean, a lot of it's just being open to the idea that I think for a lot of people, like, if you're, especially those who aren't coming from, like, say, a super athletic background, I think a lot of people think I have to be super athletic to do this thing. And if I don't meet these standards, I'm not going to make it. And that's not true. And I mean, I've even encountered that in Kung Fu, because it took me a while to motivate myself to sign up because I figured I'm like I'm overweight I I'm not like I'm not gonna fit in because they're just gonna look at me and be and like even took, oh I like she can't hang yeah, with you, the rest you of took, us you took an eight week <laughs> longsword course to get kind of back into training to get back to kung fu I mean so that, right. that restriction is still there in your head right because you just like you still just kind of think like well I haven't done this in years I've gone mm. you know you know, I've gained weight or I've lost muscle or I've done this thing. How am I going to do this? And the whole thing is, it's literally, if you are, if you find the right supportive club, they're going to help work with whatever your body limitations mm -hmm. are, whatever your, you know, if you have disabilities, if you have mental blocks of, I've never been in a fight with somebody. I'm scared of, um, either being hit by a sword or hitting somebody else with That's a sword. Really and like, we have all of these things that like we think in our heads and then stop us from doing the thing. And I think the biggest advice is it's okay to have these feelings, but communicate that to the instructors to let them know, here are the things I'm worried about. So that way they can address it appropriately and reassure you that 
you're here to have a good time, whatever your goals are out of this, and the right club will support you in enjoying that. I think it's a really good test of the club as to how they treat beginners who aren't natural athletes. Absolutely. Um, I agree. Yeah, it's, it, I mean, to me, it's, it's, it's the whole point of having a sword is you don't have to be that fit and strong to kill somebody with it. It's, like, it's a labor-saving device. It's sort of like the cult peacemaker of its time. Yeah. Right. It's like, it's like, we don't all have to be like this, like set, like this only works for you if you are over six mm. feet and you have this muscle class and, you know, yeah. you have been tactically, like it, that doesn't need to exist in this. It's like, we all have like different capabilities and can use those to our advantage in learning this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a, a decent instructor will have ways of working around whatever restrictions you might have and yeah, and in time often those restrictions get you know move away like somebody who was not flexible enough to do rapier becomes flexible enough over time as long as they take it gently right. and don't injure themselves in the process exactly um, yeah okay so what have been your main influences in historical martial arts would you say Um, you mean people? People, books, um, movies. Mm. <laughs> you you uh, can interpret the question however you like to interpret it. That, in fact, is, is really part of the question. Okay. Um, well, um, movies-wise, a, um, a lot of, like, kung fu and uh, martial arts things appeal to me. And... Um, I've, you know, a lot of, <laughs> as funny as it is, because a lot of it is, um, comedic based, a lot of the movies from Stephen Chow, like Kung Fu Hustle has like always been, um, like a major influence on me. Cause it's like the right balance of like comedic humor, um, with like really good fighting sequences and, and yeah. skill. Um, so I, so I tend to like a lot of, um, uh, Japanese and Chinese and Korean styled uh, martial arts mm -hmm. films to um, kind of motivate me in terms of like, what are the elements of, of fighting that are appealing and can work to one's advantage? Um, uh, people influences. Um, there's like, there's definitely a lot. I mean, I think like one person I could definitely say in particular would probably be Jess Finley. Oh, yeah. Um, there's a reason I had I mean, her as my first kind of, guest on the podcast. It's, it's kind of a, it's a no brainer. I mean, she's just very talented and she's done so much work for the community and she's, she's just a very welcoming instructor that will like, like adjust, like, again, based on what I said before, like, um, understand what makes you a person in terms mm -hmm. of how you learn and how your body operates and works with that in a very encouraging environment. And it's like, you know, I like seeing instructors be that where mm -hmm. it's like, not just like, I know this historical reference and I can interpret it, but I can also bring it to your level and make sure it right. feels like something that also has value to you. Yeah, And, and she understands physical disability better than most. Right. Which is, which in fairness, again, it's so many things in life. It's like people, if they don't have like direct experience with like others that have the, or, or themselves that have like limitations, they don't know until they actually proactively do the work. Mm -hmm. So, you know, sometimes when, you know, clubs start up, it's usually, you know, a group of friends and yeah. like, y'all kind of know like what each other's limits are. But as you expand as a club, then you might start figuring out like, oh, we have someone who wants to join who has these body limitations, or we have somebody who wants to join that, you know, may have like sensitivity to sound. Mm -hmm. And so how does like training in a space impact that? So as we grow as instructors in clubs, it's having to be aware of that stuff. And you're right. And Jess is very good about that. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's a, that's a good choice of main influence, certainly. Um, now, you know, we're all sort of still stuck in this ghastly pandemic, which was supposed to have gone away. Um, and in <laughs> fact, if in those countries which, where they handled things properly, 
it did go away. <laughs> but in, but, mm. but, but you, you're over there in, in the US and the, here in the UK, it's like, no, no, this is not being properly handled. And yeah, so yeah, I'm very glad that you guys are kind of getting back to some sort of limited sort of training. But um, do you have any thoughts about where you see historical martial arts going in the next year or so influenced by the pandemic? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think what you've already have seen in the last couple months, which I'm sure, you know, many people have noticed that at least the community has come together a lot in the, th in the sense that since we can't physically go to a tournament or physically go to a workshop, or like so many, so much content is being available online. Um, and like, and not just like within um, schools, like for their own students, but having the ability to offer it to other people across the country or, or across, you know, the ocean. Um, I've been fortunate enough that um, during the pandemic, especially living by myself and trying to find ways to like entertain myself and keep myself focused, a lot of my friends have reached out saying, hey, if you want to like join in, like we're doing our like online longsword class on Tuesday nights, if you want to join in through Zoom, you're more than welcome to do awesome. so. And I've been, and I've been fortunate enough that like, I've been able to join up with a couple of other clubs, you know, over time. I mean, I've even, um, like I had, a, uh, I think Memorial day weekend, I had, um, Monday off that I could actually, uh, take like David Rawlings, like, uh, sword and buckler class. And that was amazing. Mm -hmm. And like, that's probably not an opportunity I would get under normal circumstances. Right. Um, I, I've noticed that I've, so, I'm seeing more of some people who, who, you know, I'd see them maybe every couple of years when I was in the same country as them, but now I'm actually talking to them every few weeks. Right. I've made like a lot more connections with people in Europe right. over the last couple months. And like most people in Europe, I have never met them. Like, mm -hmm. but now it's like I've made connections and it's like nice to know, like when things settle down, like when I travel to the UK, for instance, I now have like people that I can go and visit their clubs mm -hmm. and hang out and I have like a nice social network with them. So I think what we'll see is that as people start continue to understand how like being able to translate um, classes in person to classes mm -hmm. online, I think there's going to be a lot more online content available sure. to the public, which makes it more accessible for people who may not be in distance of a club right. and want to get started in HEMA have now more access available. So it doesn't feel like, well, I could read a book and maybe there's like only one video of Messer that I yeah. want to do because that's not dealt. And now like there's more videos of Messer. There's more videos of side sword. There's like more content is being made available, which is amazing. And I think that trend is going to continue as a means to balance out sure. still trying to figure out how to keep everybody safe. Yeah. I, mean, I have a solo course, a solo training course on my online school and before the pandemic, we had about 140 people on it, and now we have just under a thousand, right? Because people right. need it. <laughs> so it's like, exactly. Ah. So, and yeah, and we're, I'm, I'm doing all sorts of things, like you know, every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday mornings at 8:15, I'm doing a sort of 45-minute general training, flexibility, breathing exercises, sort of fitness, strength stuff. Um, basically, my usual conditioning training. But, I'm, mm -hmm. but I was getting lazy, so I did these classes, and they're only live, um, so people can sign up and join <laughs> them. And I'm putting the recordings mm -hmm. into the solo training course so people can, you know, so people who can't make 8.15 on UK time in the morning, which is, I think, quarter past three in the morning for you. So I don't <laughs> expect to see you there ever, Robin. It's quite all right. Um, but, but there's... Sleep. Yes. So, so I'm doing that, and it's actually, it's fun. It's it's actually a really positive constraint. So, so yeah. even when the pandemic is over, I might just keep doing it. And that's what I think a lot of people are recognizing. It's like they may not do it at like the full mm. frequency or intensity as they're doing now, but I think some clubs will or, and, and instructors will decide maybe maybe there's a way that I can keep some part of online 
you know, or video component going, because then again, it's just, it provides more accessibility for people who can have options. Yeah. It's like, maybe I can't get there in person, but there's a video I can like, I can watch it this weekend and mm -hmm. I can get my training in that way. And I think I like, I really think that that's going to better the community. I also think it's a really good way of, um, again, meeting people that you wouldn't normally, like, I know for myself, I'm fortunate that I have a good job mm -hmm. and I like, because of my flexibility of going around, like I can travel to tournaments provided I can schedule yeah. it appropriately with work. Not everyone has the means to travel, sure. you know, states or countries away for that. But by having online content, you're now have better ways to connect with the people that you wish you could have trained sure. with. And I think that's really vital and helps build the community yeah. more. Uh, okay. So what is the best idea you've never acted on? Best idea I've never acted on. Most, pe most oh. people have one or two projects in the back of their head that they think, you know what, I should, I should be doing that. Ah. I mean, it, it, it could um, be a design for a particularly inspirational cookie cutter. Or it could, <laughs> or it doesn't have to have anything to do with swords. I'm just, just, just curious as to... I think, well, okay, I could probably give two from like, from a swords thing, which I'm starting to work on now that things are calming down. I was starting to do before, but I, I want to build myself as being like a um, instructor in a sense of creating like workshop content mm -hmm. uh, to be able to travel with. Because again, at a certain point, I'll probably scale down from tournaments and, mm -hmm. and and focus on that kind of stuff so um i was in the works of um creating a workshop for um uh lignitzers uh sword and oh, buckler cool. source okay. um and uh and then that and that got on pause a bit because pandemic um and i haven't made the time to do to do it yet to like like fully finish it but that that will be a goal, but it's like, in general, it's me motivating myself to work on workshops that I can feel confident teaching to people. Uh, okay, so am I right in thinking you've not taught a workshop at a, at a significant event or a major event yet? I have not taught a workshop yet. Okay. This was gonna, this year was actually gonna be my first year doing that. Where are you gonna be doing it? And then pandemic. Um, so I had, I had an opportunity to, um, do the Lignitzer class um, at um, uh, Swords of the North, which is like a small kind of like wor uh, workshop. Sometimes there's a tournament, like a casual mm -hmm. tournament that happens in uh, Maine, okay. in Portland, yep. Maine. Um, so that was going to be the first time I taught a workshop. I was also going to uh, run a panel discussion that talked about diversity and inclusion in uh, fencing organizations. Okay. And I was going to, do that and i was going to do that for um adacia um in toronto oh right so so the pandemic has really kind of screwed screwed your your, <laughs> your teaching at events schedule exactly okay. so yes this, this, basically this year was the year of i'm going to do so many tournaments and i'm going to start like challenging myself to like present events, and yeah. yep those those are both awards <laughs> yeah <laughs> well it gives you more time to prepare that is that is correct, and that is that is how I'm looking at it. I, I I figured like as things settle down with the world around me, then it's like I can actually start carving out time to be like, all right, let's get back at this. Let's do this and set this as a goal again. So, <laughs> <laughs> excellent. Okay, and my last question, uh, which I ask every guest, if you were given a million dollars to improve historical martial arts worldwide, how would you spend it? You can't just buy yourself a pretty kit. That's the only rule. <laughs> um, I think hmm, that's a really good question. I guess one angle might be to be able to, with that kind of money, create training, like accessible training locations, like, throughout various places in the country. Because I think, again, it's hard to, like, 
I'm fortunate where I am, where like even in the Boston area, we have like three major yeah. clubs that so like we have a little bit of accessibility, mm-hmm. but even still, it's hard to be able to find training space because, you know, you want something that has, you know, high ceilings and has like protect sure. things. And ideally, if you can store gear, that would be great and have it be accessible to people, whether they drive or don't yeah. drive. So I think and a means to make historical fencing more accessible mm-hmm. to everyone if we had more tr- like designated training locations that people could go mm-hmm. to that wouldn't have to be impacted by all right we have to rent space from a library yeah, yeah. or a club or a we have to go outside to fence and are limited by weather so i think if we can build some more spaces and have more loner mm-hmm. gear available so that way it's another layer of accessibility to people that I may not have the money to do this. Well, you don't necessarily need money, yeah. like a certain amount of money to do this. Here's a helmet. Here's a loner sword. Here's things. So that way you have that already available to you. Now you just have your love of learning. To I can with. tell you from experience that that makes all the difference. Because when I opened my school in Finland, when we moved to a permanent training location, a 20 minute bus ride from the center of town, right next to the bus stop and people started leaving their gear and the rule was if it's dusty or rusty it goes on the beginner's rack and anybody can use it so within about (laughs) within six months or so we had steel swords and fencing masks enough to equip a 20-person beginners course so people could come Mm -hmm. and the first class was always free so it would cost them absolutely nothing. If they have their, uh, their bus pass, it costs them literally nothing to show up and have a go and find out if, it's, if it works for them. And very often mm-hmm. it did, and so they would join the course and then they'd have their training fees from then on. But that's, there was no necessity to ever actually buy any equipment. And, right. and it just makes the whole thing so much more accessible, particularly to kids from poorer backgrounds, people who don't have jobs, yes. people who just don't right. have the spare cash to drop, you know, $500 on a training sword and a fencing mask. So mm-hmm. yeah, I, I can tell you that's a good idea because I've seen it work. So where, where would you put the first <laughs> one? In, I'm not sure if I would have necessarily exact location but i'd like to i think i'd like to put them in places that would i know this will sound funny but are like or not funny i i would like to put them in locations that are accessible to a more diverse group of people um and i think that if there are ways to have these say like you know like in inner cities or, you know, really remote locations that, again, people don't have the accessible, like the means to like use public, get travel as easily. I think that if you can make it accessible to, you know, minorities and if you can make it accessible to people who are like in the LGBTQ community, like things that just like further grow the you know, we, this can be a diverse group mm-hmm. and here's more ways to make it accessible for that. Is, is, I, I mean, forgive my ignorance of American demographics, but is that, is yeah. that, does that tend to be about geographical location? Um, it's, it sometimes can. Okay. I mean, the, the way you, like the U S is very interesting because it's like each state has its own makeup of mm. like, you know, like, like, population density and like you know you might have certain states in the midwest that are like you may not see another person for you know a few (laughs) miles and then right and again i i live you know outside of boston massachusetts where it's a extremely diverse uh you know location um so the the variety definitely depends on the state Mm -hmm. you live in and even in the state different regions lend themselves towards very few people, a lot mm-hmm. of people, a lot of diversity, very little diversity. Mm-hmm. It varies. Okay. It's not consistent. So we have to do a bit of research to figure out where to put this first place. Yeah, I, I would I, I would have to think. Because uh, I, I, I think, again, it's 
I think a lot of the major cities have access sure. to it. I think it's like this. I think it's like smaller towns or things that do not have major mm. metropolises that makes it harder for like you see all the time and people um, asking like I'm looking to join a club and the nearest club is two hours away in this yeah. state because there's only like two clubs. So like if there is ways to put like more clubs in like regions of people that want to do it, that would be great. I would. Okay. Good use of the cash. Excellent. If I had it, I'd give it to you. I don't have it, so you're not doing it. <laughs> Thank you. That's, a, that's fine. Story of my life. <laughs> so, well, thank you very much for, for joining me today. Um, is there, do you have any sort of parting words, anything you'd like the listeners to go and do before we say goodbye? Absolutely. I think for me, I just like to offer myself as like a really good example of like the whole idea that anybody if they're interested can do historical martial mm -hmm. arts like i think a lot of times again people are afraid like i have to be a certain athletic level or i have to meet the certain certain class i'm like i'm 41 i'm you know i'm black i'm a woman i'm like all these attributes of of, of a person that you know someone might not think oh she's a she's a sword fighter but I'm like proof like you can definitely like anybody can do this and enjoy it and like engage in it in the way that is like the most meaningful to them. So like it's why I encourage everybody and I'm a huge advocate of like trying to get people to put swords in their hands and have fun with it. Yeah. yeah. One of the most meaningful things you can do for some people is just put a sword in their hand for the first time. And it's, it's like it's like Absolutely. a light switch. It's yeah, magic. It's, it is magic. Well, that's a perfect <laughs> note to end on. Thank you very much for joining me, Robin. It's been lovely. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Thanks for listening. I hope you've enjoyed my conversation today with Robin. Remember to go along to guywindsor.net forward slash podcast for the episode show notes and for your free copy of Sword Fighting for Writers, Game Designers and Martial Artists. If you've particularly enjoyed the show, please go along to patreon.com forward slash the sword guy to help us keep the lights on by throwing us some cash. I'd like to give a shout out this week to new patrons Hayden from Auckland in New Zealand and Sammy Novaster. Thank you very much indeed. I really do appreciate the support. Tune in next week when I'll be talking to Dr. Eleanor Yanniger, a medieval historian. You do not want to miss this episode, so subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcast from, and I will see you next week. Cheerio!